What's up and welcome back to the No Notes Podcast. My name is JD. If you're new here, then typically I have a co-host. Her name's Morgan. But this week, Morgan has the week off and you're stuck with just me. If you want to hear just Morgan talk, though, you can go back and listen to last week's show when Morgan took us through a really intelligent, thoughtful, thought-provoking discussion on the nature of franchise filmmaking. I think that was really cool. And so I would encourage you to go listen to that. And this week, you're stuck with me kind of doing the exact opposite. I'm going to talk about one very specific franchise, in fact, one very specific franchise film, and why I think it is especially underrated. It's a topic I feel very strongly about that Morgan, frankly, couldn't care less about. So we're going to hear me talk. So please bear with me. I don't think this will be super long, but I do hope you will find it engaging. If you read the episode's title, you'll know the film I'm going to talk about is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. With its sequel due out this Friday, of the week that you're hearing this, I thought now would be the perfect time to dive into why I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is the most underrated movie in the MCU. I think that the way that it slows down and meditates on its characters gives them all really unique, fleshed out arcs revolving around the theme of family and letting the characters drive the story rather than the story drive the characters make it the most underrated film in the mcu and now i'm going to lay out why Guardians 2, we have our same five characters reunited from Volume 1. That's Peter, a.k.a. Star-Lord, Gamora, the former assassin daughter of Thanos, Drax the Destroyer, who lost his wife and his daughter to one of Thanos' mercenaries, Rocket, the cybernetically enhanced raccoon who hates the world and loves Groot, Groot, who died at the end of the first film, sacrificing his life for the other four characters, is now back in the form of Baby Groot, the adorable marketing ploy that Disney set up. We also have Yondu and Nebula, two secondary or tertiary villains from the first film, back in expanded roles, and a new char- and two new characters in the form of Mantis and Ego, played by Kurt Russell. Ego being our primary antagonist and Peter's biological father, whom he never met. Each of these characters has a really intelligent and thoughtful arc in the movie that's all connected to the idea of family. Under the idea of family, though, I think James Gunn has set up three really compelling sub-themes. We talk about loss, there's thoughts about ego, and really the notion of parenthood as well. Parenthood is kind of obviously seen in Groot's storyline, which involves him growing up under the guidance of these four adults who are like sharing custody of him. The opening musical monologue set to EOL's Electric Light Orchestra's Mr. Blue Sky gets to see each of our four guardians have a little parenting moment with Baby Groot. I think the naming of him as Baby Groot is very intentional and clever. There's the idea of loss dealt with. After all, in the first film, Peter gives a monologue to the other characters about how they're all losers because they're all folks who have lost stuff. They've lost their parents. They've lost their siblings. They've lost parts of their identity. And because of this, they take this hurt and this pain into their new relationships. 
we see ego with the lowercase e, the idea, you know, that part of our self-conscious from where we define our worth, our value, our self-esteem. Uh, it's the part of our mind that meditates our conscious desires with our subconscious feelings of self-worth. Our egos are where we get our arrogance, our overinflated ideas of self-worth or our overinflated ideas of self-hatred, self-loathing. And we'll see both of these on display with characters in volume two. And obviously it's a not so subtle coincidence that the main antagonist of the film is ego with a capital E when I think really another antagonist of the film is ego with a lowercase e. Another sub theme that we have is the idea of parenthood and how ego Peter Quill's biological father impacts him and how the parents of all of our characters and how parenthood in all of our characters influences the film. Each character in the film that I outlined, nine of them, which is a lot, have a really cool and engaging character arc that all revolve around the idea of family. So really quickly, I'm going to break down each of these character arcs. And at the end, I'm going to get to why I think these arcs and these themes of family are so brilliantly tied together to make this the most underrated film in the MCU. So character arcs. Let's start with the guy who gets top billing. That's Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord, everyone's favorite immature man-child. Peter faces his entire identity and his frame of reference almost like he's a victim. You know, he lost his mother. He doesn't know his father. He was raised by ravagers. He has a, a victim mindset, almost. And he's entirely reliant on 80s pop culture references. And he almost makes this another core aspect of his personality. And while I think this is typically something that Marvel heroes like Iron Man get uh, lifted up for, I think that Guardians 2 sees this as a character flaw in Peter. It's almost like he's stuck in a state of arrested development because of all of his circumstances. And now he labels himself as a victim of the things that have happened to him, which are tragic. But rather than moving and growing beyond this, he's stuck in this state where Cheers and Knight Rider and David Hasselhoff and Pac-Man are all that he has, you know? And he uses this as an excuse to treat people in ways that he shouldn't. Peter is finally given something greater than the life that he has, the life that he kind of finds pitiful almost when he meets his biological father, Ego. Ego because he ego well let me first explain ego um ego is a celestial he is an all-powerful almost godlike being he's also a planet he has a planet from where he draws all of his life force from where he draws the ability to create anything that he wants ego is a god ego is peter's biological father and through ego peter is almost presented with a way out of the life that he finds so bad peter's also incredibly arrogant in his state of arrested development he's been taught by the ravagers that he grew up with he's been taught by pop culture that this is the way that he should be peter's ego oftentimes gets in the way though because as we see in the beginning of the film Peter is really insecure. The film starts off with the Guardians doing their, you know, doing that 
whole action scene set to Mr. Blue Sky. The Guardians are trying to stop this evil monster from taking Anulax batteries or Harbulary batteries, as Drax might incorrectly say. There's a scene where Peter is preparing to do battle with this giant monster, and he sees that Gamora has a gun. But guns are Peter's thing. He's like, why aren't you using your sword? I thought swords were your thing and guns were mine. It's almost like Peter's feeling attacked. You know, his, his masculinity, his identity as the leader, as the guy with guns, whatever. He feels like Gamora, who he is attracted to, is almost stepping on his turf. And Peter responds in immaturity. You know, when we see Peter's ego get in the way a lot of other times in the movie, like when they're trying to escape from the sovereign who they managed to piss off through Rocket's own arrogance. And we'll get to Rocket later. Peter's arrogance and his inability to work through things just, you know, in a normal way result in the Guardians meeting ego. Yes, but also in getting their ship crashed. Now, Peter has been groomed by pop culture that he can't escape from. He's positioned himself as a victim in so many ways, and now he is being presented with power. He's being presented with the fact that he could be immortal and he could create anything that he wants because of the power that his biological father can give him. So we see Peter, who's really coming from a frame of reference of sorrow and almost being a baby now being presented with the limitless power through this biological father that he never knew. Peter also then thinks, because of this new power that he's getting, that he must be somehow deserving of a relationship with Gamora. Peter thinks, oh, well now, now I'm powerful. Now I'm good enough to be in a relationship with this girl that I have a crush on. But Peter still has a lot of work that he has to do on himself. And so does Gamora. Every character in this movie gets a great story arc. And Gamora kind of revolves around her relationship with her sister, Nebula. Nebula, the tertiary antagonist from the first film, comes back here. We first meet her as a prisoner of the Sovereign, the people who the Guardians have hired to protect their batteries, who they manage to piss off later. Gamora is really closed off emotionally. You know, again, partially due to her childhood, her family, her father who raised her, that theme of parenthood coming back. Gamora is the calm and rational guardian. She knows Peter has a crush on her, but she is closed off. Even though she enjoys the company of these boys that she's in community with, she's got a lot of baggage from her past, and she's holding on to it, and she's really confronted with it when the Sovereign hand over Nebula, the prisoner that they have, who is also in this sort of state of arrested development. Nebula, closed off emotionally like her sister, instead of entirely being driven by sorrow over her deceased parent or immaturity, is driven by revenge. Nebula is driven by a thirst for Gamora's blood because she sees Gamora, her sister, as the reason behind her suffering. Because Gamora didn't stand in the way when Nebula was being tormented by their abusive father Thanos, Gamora is the problem. Nebula wants Gamora to be killed. Nebula and Gamora's storyline is tied really closely together. And I really appreciate in this movie how they take the female characters and don't base their entire storyline on a man or a romantic relationship. Instead, this is really before Black Widow, the only MCU movie where we get to see a sister relationship get worked out. And I really appreciate that. 
Nebula, who's abused and tortured for not being as good as Gamora, wants to kill Gamora. And Gamora, in her own selfishness, who never helped Nebula, realizes the hurt that she caused her sister. And so through repairing her relationship with Nebula, who is able to forgive Gamora in some, even, you know, if it's a little bit hesitantly, they begin to break down each other's own walls that they've built up. And through working through the trauma that they've experienced at the hands of their father, these sisters begin to break down the emotional walls they put up and open themselves up to more. And to me, this storyline is one of the most powerful and impactful in the movie. And it ties back to Peter. Peter, who sees Gamora somewhat as a romantic object to be conquered, can't get over the idea that she wouldn't want to be with him. But Gamora has a lot more work that she needs to be doing on herself, tearing down emotional walls she's put up before she could ever be in a romantic relationship. But Peter, in his mind that's been so influenced by cheers, doesn't understand why a woman wouldn't want to be with him because of this new power that he has. We'll come back to Peter in a little bit. For now, let's touch on Drax, who has a much more... Uh, limited character arc in this movie. He's mostly the comedic relief. He's, uh, I heard him called the Gimli when I was doing some research for this pod. And though Drax has a much more broadly comic character this time around, he still has some heavy sadness around him over his loss of his family. You know, Drax was a father to a daughter before his daughter was taken away from him. Drax's storyline really gets featured in his big scene with the new character Mantis. Mantis is an empath. Anytime she makes contact with somebody physically, she can feel the emotions they're feeling. Drax is reflecting on the loss of his wife and his daughter when Mantis makes contact with him. And though Drax is stoic and and silent and seemingly still in the face, when Mantis touches him, she is overcome with grief. She cries, she weeps and sobs openly, which in a scene that's played really perfectly by Dave Batista, we get to see the amount of pain that Drax is constantly carrying with him. And though Drax is pretty unashamed about sexual mores or things that, you know, humans or especially, you know, American audiences would find shameful, and this is played for comedic effect, a lot of the things of which Drax is unashamed are tied to his family. His father tells the story of impregnating his mother every winter solstice, uh, there are just small moments like that that Drax that really reveal how deeply Drax cares about family. And we see this in his relationships with Rocket, with baby Groot, with Peter. Drax cares deeply about all of these people. And though a lot of his stuff is played for laughs, we really get a great sense that Drax is a deeply empathetic person in addition to being a big brute. And I love the way that Drax's storyline plays into the overall theme of family. And that scene that I mentioned with Drax and Mantis ends up being really key to the plot as well because it builds the trust between Mantis and Drax that is needed to reveal the evilness of Ego if it wasn't already clear to the audience. So we've covered uh, about half of Peter. We've covered Gamora and Nebula and Drax. And while all four of those characters are running in one plot track, there's a subsequent plot track that is running perpendicular. It's bound to collide at some point with the other four characters, and that's Rocket, Groot, and Yondu. Now, Groot really doesn't have too much of a character arc other than he's a baby, and he's adorable, and he's used as a marketing ploy. Rocket and Yondu have a really awesome parallel story arc because Rocket ends up setting the whole plot of the movie in motion. As the Guardians are protecting these batteries for the Sovereign, Rocket decides to steal some. 
in a move that is driven by arrogance, by selfishness. It's done, he says, because he wanted to. Rocket wanted to steal these batteries. Rocket wanted to piss off the people who hired them for really no good reason. Rocket comes from a place of rejecting all love and pushing others away. And his storyline leads him to see the value of family. Rocket is a little bit of a jerk. While they're avoiding the Sovereign who are wrathfully seeking after them due to the batteries Rocket stole, Rocket and Peter are arguing over who's going to be the better pilot. They basically get into a measuring contest. And this measuring contest through an asteroid field leads to the Guardian's ship being completely destroyed. They are only saved because Ego manages to find them in what is, I'll admit, a little bit of a plot convenience. Peter and Rocket continue to spar as the Guardians crash land. They're each stooping lower and lower to hurt each other. As Ego takes Rocket, Gamora, and Drax away to do their storylines, Rocket stays behind before colliding with Yondu and the Ravagers. Yondu's storyline enters the picture after this opening has all been set up. Yondu enters the picture having been ousted by the space pirate order of the Ravagers and being rejected by his own surrogate father, played by Sylvester Stallone. Now, Yondu and his sect of Ravagers are out of the Ravager clan because Yondu has been smuggling kids. He's broken the moral code that the Ravagers, the family who took him in, have established. Yondu, in his arrogance, has broken his family's heart. And so we meet Yondu, desperately broken, on this desolate planet with a crew that is starting to turn against him. And now the Sovereign approach Yondu about finding the Guardians so they can get their batteries back and kill the Guardians for the slight that they had against the Sovereign people. So Yondu and his band of Ravagers hunt down Rocket, find him, even though the rest of the Guardians are gone, in the forest. And now they have Rocket, they have the batteries, they could kill the Guardians of the Galaxy. But Yondu doesn't want to. Remember how I mentioned Yondu was smuggling kids, right? Well, one of the kids that Yondu was smuggling was one Peter Quill. Yondu sees Peter as a surrogate son. Yondu really loves and cares for Peter. And the rest of his crew kind of feel annoyed and betrayed. In the first movie, we see several instances where Yondu lets Peter off easier than he probably should. And in this film, we see it again. As Yondu has Rocket cornered and he could go after the rest of the Guardians, instead Yondu's like, I'm not going to kill the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm going to take these batteries for myself and sell them. And this kind of makes Yondu's crew upset. They see this as Yondu being arrogant and Yondu showing Peter more favoritism than the rest of his crew. So Yondu's crew starts a mutiny against him. They take Yondu and Rocket captive. Yondu and Rocket, now prisoners of the Ravagers, will have to sit there and watch as any other crew members who might have been loyal to Yondu are ejected into space in some truly harrowing shots. You know, when, when I first saw this movie, I thought this was really unnecessarily bleak stuff. There is several seconds of footage of just dead pirates floating in the vacuum of space. It's pretty haunting. But I think it serves to show the impact that this is all having on Yondu's character. Yondu, through his own arrogance, has lost the Ravager Alliance. He's lost his own father figure, Sylvester Stallone's character. Now he's lost any crew that's loyal to him, and he's had the rest of his crew turn against him. Yondu's also lost his special power, his little whistly arrow thing from the first movie. Yondu has completely lost everything due to his own arrogance, and all he has left now is sharing a cell with Rocket, who he sees going down the same path as him. 
Rocket has a good found family in the Guardians, but he keeps pissing them off by stealing batteries he doesn't need and by stooping to lower levels to make Peter and the others angry. Yondu sees a lot of himself in Rocket, and these two and their storyline come to collide with the other storyline when we learn that Yondu has been smuggling kids to Ego. That's right, Ego. This villain, this almighty planet who has all kinds of power that he wants to share with Peter. Ego, his story arc kind of comes into clear focus now. He's a really interesting character. He's an all-powerful, immortal being so long as his planet's core is alive. And he wants to have a family. He's alone in the universe. He feels like he has a nobody. And so Ego has been going around the universe for however long, basically finding new species to make children with. What Ego wants to do is have a child so that he can share his celestial power and so that through the power of him and another half-celestial, he can remake the entire universe in his image. Because Ego, in his own arrogance with his inflated lowercase e ego, sees the universe as poor and broken, and he is the only one who can fix it which is by wiping out everything and making it in his own image with him and one of his children. However, the biological children that he has been having Yondu take to him have not carried the celestial gene like Peter does. They have not had the access to the power. And so what has Yondu done but kill all of them? Dozens, potentially hundreds of them. In another really harrowing shot, we see Gamora and Nebula, after they reconcile, stumble upon a cave full of bones of Ego's deceased children. And Mantis, after her moment with Drax, feels like she owes it to Drax to share with him the truth about Ego and what he wants to do with Peter. And so now we have Yondu and Rocket, kidnapped by Ravagers, wanting to go save Peter from Ego. So Yondu and Rocket team up. They put their own arrogances and egos aside to get rid of Yondu's mutinous crew and go off to save Peter. Yondu wants to save Peter because he sees him as a surrogate son. Rocket claims he wants to save Peter because he wants to throw the fact that he saves Peter's life in his face. Now we get back to Peter's storyline. I know I'm doing a lot of jumping around here, but I promise I'm, I'm getting somewhere. Or at least I think I am. <laughs> In Peter's storyline, now he's with Ego. We've learned as an audience the truth about what Ego wants to do. But Peter, who has seen himself as a victim for so long and who's just been romantically rejected by Gamora because he only views her as a romantic object to be conquered, at least I think that's how he's primarily viewing her at least, he's now ready to give himself over to Ego and to Ego's plan to remake the universe and his image. And Peter's a little hesitant to do it. But Peter, for the first time in his life, is being told that he is special. Peter has access to some sort of power he's never had before. And so as Ego's doing his big evil villain monologue, we now learn that Ego is the reason Peter's mother died when he was so young. Ego is the reason Peter has been deprived of this love that he shares and this affection he feels for his mother. The most sacred thing to him, his mother, is revealed to have been poisoned. And this is enough to turn Peter against Ego. Ego, in his arrogance, has killed Peter's mom. And Peter sees this as a slight that cannot be overcome. Peter tries to kill Ego. And Ego decides he's going to use Peter as a living battery. And now 
all of our plot lines are beginning to converge as Yondu and Rocket make their way to Ego's planet to save Quill. Yondu, out of a love for his surrogate son that he refuses to admit. Rocket, out of a love for his friend that he refuses to admit. Gamora, Drax, Nebula, Mantis is now on their side. They're teaming up to stop Ego. And now we really get the character movement from Peter, Yondu, and, and Rocket that I think make this movie so special. The subplots with Gamora and Nebula and Drax, I think, are really excellently done and contribute to the overarching theme of family in the movie. But the, the climax of the movie, where we see Yondu, Peter, and Rocket really come together, I think is where the beauty of the movie comes out. Because Yondu, having lost literally everything and faced with the prospect of losing his surrogate son, is so beaten down and broken down to the point where he finally admits to Peter that the reason that he didn't sell him to Ego those years ago and raised him as a surrogate son is because he felt some kind of love for him and had grown to feel some kind of love for him over the years. And Peter, who viewed Yondu as this abusive, evil space pirate, begins to see Yondu for who he was his father. Yondu really became a surrogate father to Peter. He raised him. He taught him in so many ways. This Ravager crew is who is helped make Peter who he is. And Yondu, only by losing everything, comes to realize that he cannot bear to lose this one thing that he truly loves, Peter. And Peter, by learning that his biological father is the root of all of the pain and suffering he's seen is able to be at a place where he can see Yondu and Yondu revealing himself for what it is, which is love. Peter realizes that for all of Yondu's faults, he loves his daddy, which is just a really sweet and touching and heartwarming moment. And Rocket, having seen Yondu, and seeing all of the terrible stuff he's done, the arrogance that he's acted with, and the way that he has pushed everyone away, and that Yondu is only able to come to this place by losing everything, Rocket realizes that he doesn't want to do this. You know, so they end up defeating Ego. A lot of really cool and fun action is done. The day is saved. Our characters act out of love for each other. And Rocket, having really bonded with Yondu, gives him a, one final jetpack and one final space-breathing apparatus. And so Yondu, without question, acts heroically to save his surrogate son. Rocket, then, being so moved by Yondu's sacrifice, and Peter being so moved by Yondu's sacrifice, decide to host a Ravager funeral. This Ravager funeral is seen by just essentially burning Yondu's corpse into a series of flowing lights, Peter gives a, a really moving eulogy that does not rely on pop culture references, but speaks to Yondu for who he was and the person that he is. You know, Peter doesn't try to do anything hokey or sticky or make the audience laugh by using some sort of pop culture lens. Peter speaks about Yondu as a person, dropping this sort of childlike state of arrested development he's been in to speak to the core of Yondu as a person in a way that I found really moving, especially on my last rewatch. And Rocket, being so moved by Yondu's sacrifice, lets his surrogate father, Sylvester Stallone, know what Yondu did. Yondu sacrificed himself to save Peter. And so, upon hearing this, the Ravagers, the people who had left Yondu behind out of Yondu's poor actions, come back for him. And they give him a proper send-off by shooting fireworks out into the sky in space in honor of Yondu's life. This moves Rocket so deeply 
because Rocket sees that even though Yondu did everything possible to push the people that took care of him when nobody else would away, in the end, the people that loved Yondu still showed up for him when he died. Even though he was a jerk, even though he pushed people away, even though he stole batteries he didn't need and pissed people off he didn't need to, at the end of the day, Yondu's family didn't leave him. And Pete, and when Rocket is verbalizing these things, he realizes Peter responds with a simple, of course not. Of course not. Gosh, I just find these moments so moving, so stirring, because they've been so earned. You know, the storyline in this movie really is not perfect. There's a lot of contrivances and a lot of conveniences that you kind of have to get past from a story perspective in Guardians 2. And there's some timing stuff that and pacing stuff that just really doesn't work. You know, if you were to look at it purely objectively, seven out of 10 would be a fair score, I think. But these moments, these character beats that really drive the story, even though the pacing ends up suffering for it, it's these little character moments. As we see Rocket move from a place of, of rejecting all love and pushing people away because he sees that as the inevitable conclusion of his relationship because of the abuse he's endured to a place where he sees the love that a family can bring even if you've been so terrible even if your ego has gotten in the way that rocket has moved to tears I, it just works it works so well it's a beautiful progression from a person who is so angry with the world to a person who becomes so desirous to see good things happen to the people he loves he stops pushing people away he works to save them he works to save Quill, not because he wants to lord it over him, but because he wants him to be alive. He comes to love his family in the end of the movie. And so, yes, all of these characters experienced great loss. They've experienced great sadness, whether they've experienced broken relationships with their parents, with their creators, they've been abused by their makers or their surrogate parents or their adoptive parents or have broken relationships with their siblings or have lost their parents and their wife and their daughter. All of these people come into this movie with brokenness, with flagrant egos, but find community with each other. And each of them come to a place where they realize the beauty of that in their own time. Peter is able to leave the self-referential victim, the pop culture referential and victim mindset that he has behind. Rocket is able to leave his own arrogance and desire to push other people away behind out of a desire to preserve the great thing that he has. And he sees it in Yondu. He sees his future in Yondu. And that moves him so deeply. In addition to the fact that Yondu's own found family did not sacrifice him in the end and it's all set against the backdrop of cat stevens song father and son which really speaks to the overall theme of parenthood of family in the movie in addition to it being a beautiful song that just makes me cry whenever i hear it so yeah guardians 2 is not perfect but these character moments and the way they're all tied to this one theme of family work so so well even if it's the detriment of the story, to me, it's these character moments, it's these character arcs that every character gets that make this film so masterful 
and that make it so underrated. It's easy for people to look at this movie and see a story that doesn't work as well as it possibly could and some pacing that's off and it's melancholic tone that can turn people off like it turned me off initially. But underneath that is some really moving, really powerful, really stirring character work that I think is truly the best the MCU has ever done at least until Guardians of the Galaxy 3 comes out. We'll see how James Gunn concludes this trilogy pretty soon. So that's my thought process, my probably very scattered rambling on why Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is so underrated. I think it's a really beautiful film with really incredible character arcs that are all tied to really unique themes, or not unique themes, that are all tied to really intricate themes. It's a tightly woven story. I think James Gunn does such a great job. I think all the acting performances are so good. If you enjoyed this, then please make sure to follow us. We're on Spotify. And as of this recording, we are on Apple Podcasts now. So if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, thank you. And go back and listen to more of our stuff on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at no notes underscore podcast. And please just be sure to rate us, review us, give us that five star. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you can do better. If you love Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and agree, let us know. If you hate Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and think that I'm wrong, let me know. If you think I talked for way too long about something that really is not that important, I know. Uh, That's just how it is. (laughs) We'll be back next Wednesday with more stuff. Morgan and I are going to be back together in the studio, which is not really a studio. (laughs) We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening.